welcome to the opening night of the Evening Micro Festival. Thanks so much for coming. So I'd just like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands from which we are all presenting tonight. We're all presenting from, well, most of us are presenting from different areas. I'm coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. So we pay respect to the elders of all of these lands, past and present, and extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who are here today. Uh, part of this acknowledgement is also the understanding that this is stolen land on which we live and work and that that sovereignty was never ceded. Uh, so welcome to Editing Micro Festival's first event from for 2021, Industry Community. I'm really thrilled to have everyone here and to be opening this little festival again for a second year. It's really one of my favourite things in the world to do. I've done it twice now and uh, I'm glad we're back and with a pretty big turnout for the first event. It's exciting. Uh, so I just want to quickly thank the City of Melbourne for its support of the festival this year in the form of a quick response arts grant that made our affordable tickets possible and also an access grant that has allowed us to have live captioning available at this event. And please welcome our captioner for the event, Jason, who's with Auslan Connections. So now I'd like to introduce one of my favourite people on the planet, Lur Al-Grabi. Lur is an Iraqi and Australian writer, poet and playwright and co-director of the National Young Writers Festival. She is a winner of the A.M. Heath Prize for Prose and the Scribe Nonfiction Prize and shortlistee of the Deborah Cass Prize. She has been widely published in Australia and the US, including fine print magazine Lit Hub, The Lifted Brow, Gum Mag, Kill Your Darlings, Right Now, Going Down Swinging and Mianjin. And Lua is a recent alumna of the Oxford University Masters in Creative Writing with Distinction. Lua is also our host for tonight. Welcome, Lua. I'll pass it over to you. Thank you very much, Matilda, for a beautiful introduction. Um, uh, I am joining you from the unceded land of the Ghana people. Um, this always was and always will be Aboriginal land and sovereignty has not been ceded. I pay my respect to elders past and present and um, acknowledge their fight and their resilience in the face of colonization, genocide and ongoing police oppression. Uh, thank you everybody for joining us today. It's uh, really wonderful to be here and to talk to you about um, industry and community with a really wonderful group of writers and activists and editors. Um, would everyone like to introduce themselves briefly? I'll go first. Um, my name is uh, Susie Garcia and I'm an editor at Kill Your Darlings and I'm um, talking to you from the um, Wurundjeri country. Thank you. Uh, I'm Claire. I'm mostly a um, creative nonfiction writer, um, but I'm also an editor at VoiceWorks and a bookseller. Um, today I'm coming to you from Wurundjeri Alliance. Uh, my name's Roz. Um, I am coming to you also from Rwandri land. Um, I'm editor-in-chief at Archer magazine and also a creative nonfiction writer. Thank you. Um, well, I guess we're going to open with a little bit more background about our relationships with community. And uh, one of the things that made me really interested in this panel in particular is that I have always felt like my work as a writer and my career in writing would never really have... Um, found the light of day had it not been for the National Young Writers Festival community when I first attended as a baby audience member um, perhaps seven years ago and uh, met some really incredible people who've 
been there through um, through everything that this industry has kind of thrown at us and we've done that always together. There were people who've introduced me to opportunities, people who've given me advice when I needed it and people who had my back when I had no idea what to do in terms of my career and where it was meant to go. And I'd love to hear from you about a little bit more about your communities in this industry and uh, how they have been there for you or what they mean to you, or maybe how they've been atrocious to you. Maybe how you hate them uh, in every single way and wish that they would just stop calling you. Uh, so let's start with you, Claire. Can you tell us a little bit more about your uh, relationship with this topic and what it means to you? Yeah, I feel like um, my biggest thing here is the community around VoiceWorks, which I think probably has a massive overlap with National Young Writers Festival as well, um, of just bringing together all young people, um, mostly under 25, um, who are writers, poets, artists. Um, and I think um, uh, I've been part of VoiceWorks now for nearly six years. It's been <laughs> a while. I joined when I was... Um, literally 18 um so I'm I'm nearly too old <laughs> um but it's been it's been a beautiful experience of um kind of growing together um and so I'm part of the editorial committee um as, as well as being a writer um and I think that's been a really special experience um yeah growing growing with um younger people and figuring out how do I fit into, I think, a broader community, broader industry. Yeah, I think, I think VoiceX is, <laughs> for me, where it's been. Um, and I, I really, like, love everyone I've worked with in my six years. What about you, Rose? Yeah, um, so by the time I discovered that the National Young Writers Festival exists, I don't know, I lived in a, under a rock for like my 20s and I discovered it when I was 30 and went and participated in it and loved every second of it and kind of felt that ticking time clock of like, you know, there's five years <laughs> left that I can be part of this community. Um, and it's just interesting to me hearing about like voice works particularly. And I, every time I teach a group of young writers, I advocate for voice work so strongly, um, but I feel like I missed out on it. Like I have this sense of, you know, real loss and like, I just hear so much about what it did for emerging writers and edit editors and critics. Um, and it's funny because I did a creative writing degree. They just didn't really uh, frame it in the real world at all. And um, so I just, yeah, it's, it was a really interesting one. So I kind of was on my own for like the first while, like I would say a decade as a writer, um, just publishing pieces and not really feeling like any part of any community. And it really wasn't until publishing in Archer magazine um, really early on, it was in issue three um, and still not being a part of that community, just like very much watching them with appreciation and like, you know, wanting to be part of it, but kind of um, just sitting like passively and watching from afar. Um, and then that started to change. And I now am just so grateful for that community. It just feels like a place like the slogan at Archer is, or slogan, I don't, I don't know what you call it, motto, um, is sex is weird for everyone. And we have t-shirts that say that. And like, whenever I wear the t-shirt, people are like, 
what does that mean? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, what does it mean to you? Let's have a conversation about sex and writing and whatever. Um, And just feeling part of this like very odd writing and editing community um, has been amazing for me. And I think just building from there has given me the confidence to go into other, you know, other writing publications and just feel like I have like a footing, which I didn't feel like I had before. It's really wonderful to see a community that where you can go from being um, published in it as a writer to progressing to being the editor later on, which is not an easy progression, but with the community that allows it, it is. it can be a very natural and very seamless one with the right person. And it's really wonderful that they have been the kind of place that has allowed you to do that. Yeah, absolutely. It took like, I would say six years (laughs) to get to that point. But I I just, I love um, working with Amy Middleton, the founder, and she's just someone who approaches um, emerging writers as though we're just exactly the same as any other established writer. And the opportunities offered to everyone, regardless of where you've published or if you've published. Um, And yeah, there's just been a chance to really grow. And yeah, I, I really love that. And I'm so grateful for that. What about you, Susie? Tell me a little bit more about your community. Oh, I definitely relate to what Roz was saying about being a late starter. I um, have been a bookseller for a really long time and I would go to like industry events and things and it would just be like, this is not my crowd and like this is very awkward and not really feel like others around people who were like me or like it just felt like very odd in that situation. Um, Around the same time, two things happened which kind of um, connected me with communities. Um, One was I um, went to RMIT and did professional writing and editing uh, degree. And I, almost 10 years later, are still finishing off subjects. And what that did was allow me to learn while also working and pay rent, which was something that I just couldn't afford to study full-time or just part-time even. It really needed to be one subject a semester. And so was slowly able to like learn some skills. But the big one for me was I became involved with Jed Press. I was approached by Hala Ibrahim who is the publisher of, of Jed Press. And um, she asked me to come on board for a paid um, editorial mentorship. And through that was able to engage with um, all these writers and develop my skills. And that has been like a big game changer for me. I should say um, Jed Press is a um, journal that's made for and by people, black and people of color. And it's um, very much community focused in that way. And did you feel like there was um, a huge difference between your practice within the university in terms of studying and focusing on craft and skill and your exposure into the industry through Jet? I think the concerns about what we publish and how we publish things and like the kind of ethical and like considerations around that is far more um, considered in like the way Jet approaches things. Um, RMIT was great, but it's also a very like white cohort. Um, I think some of these issues are being talked about, but not in the same way and not with the same kind of rigor, I would say. Yeah, yeah. And that is something that Jed has always done really wonderfully. And um, I wish that there come a time where it stops being necessary, but yeah. Speaking of publications, um, Claire, you are the co-founder of LeafMag, which um, I'm I'm not going to introduce that, let you do that, but it is something that has a very, very interesting premise and one that is very important in the the purpose of um, demystifying the industry and breaking down those boundaries between writer and 
the community. Tell us a little bit more about LeafMag. Yeah, so LeafMag um, started with um, my friend Jessica Harvey and um, another person I knew, um, Rebecca Fletcher, who's not um, part of the project anymore. Um, we were having all sorts of conversations about frustrations in, in our studies, um, even though I'm sure um, we were all actually grateful for, for what we had studied. Um, but the ultimately there, there was kind of a view of the industry of either you're a writer or you're an editor. Um, and if you, if you want to work in publishing, you know, everyone's dreaming of going into editorial. Um, which is not a new problem. Um, but I, I was also kind of realizing, um, and this has a bit, of, a bit of a background as well with, um, as I was growing up, my mum uh, was working as a careers counselor for adults. Um, so I grew up with like a lot of information about careers and like how, how do people make choices? How do they make um, often the wrong choices for them? Um, and all, all the kinds of information that people are often missing. So I yeah. came to, to this idea of Leaf Mag of, um, yeah, what, what are the kinds of things we're missing when we're, we're thinking only of editorial um, in publishing? Um, so the idea for Leaf Mag is just um, publishing interviews with people who have various jobs who work with books. Um, and that's, yeah, I'd, I kind of like to call it the beyond editorial space. Um, and we do still publish interviews with editors because I think obviously it's, it's a crucial part of publishing. Um, but yeah, trying to broaden beyond that. Um, so we've had obviously like things like marketing and publicity, but also um, events. Oh, I'm trying to think. <laughs> What else have we done? Um, things on like audiobooks. Um, uh, I had a great interview with someone who was doing like licensing for a company that um, makes videos of like story time for libraries. Um, so it's just all these sorts of jobs that people um, might not have thought existed. And then talking about um, the pathways into those jobs often of, you know, were people happy with what they studied? Did they retrain? Um, and of course, then facing um, the questions of did you do unpaid internships? Um, you know, what kind of privileges also led you to that work? Um, I think, yeah, trying to be more upfront about, yeah, often the, the, the privileges that have allowed people into uh, the work that they want to do, um, but that leave other people frustrated. I think we can, I, as a whole community, do better about talking about those things. And that's that's one of the things that LEAF tries to do. And editing and publishing and writing, actually, in general, or any, anything that would generate money from writing, um, so often rely on the people that we already know. Uh, because, A, I mean, the, the writing and publishing community in Australia is relatively small, but also uh, the big names in it of sorts kind of do tend to band together and stick together, mm. which can make it extremely difficult for someone who has all the knowledge and all the experience and all the skills to break into because they just don't know the right person. So it does, it is something that has a bit of a cliquey nature. Um, yeah. And I think I'm, I'm trying to kind of get rid of some of that and yeah, talk about the, the ways that people found themselves in those yeah. jobs and it's been a great process of some of the interviews are of people that I've already known whether that's through VoiceWorks or um, as a bookseller 
Um, but it's also a lot of been just reaching out to people and like searching on LinkedIn for, you know, I want to talk to someone who does this particular thing and then trying to connect with, with those kind of people and saying, I want to know more about your job. I think that's something that a lot of writers actually take for granted is just how much opportunity comes from LinkedIn. Um, yeah. We're all on Twitter so often, but the fact I've got like at least three really decent commissions from LinkedIn. Um, and it's always from the people who are not very much online on Twitter. They're not really part of that kind of hashtag Auslit group, but have something really wonderful to share or something wonderful to offer or want to get access into something wonderful that you're offering. And that's usually the first platform that they go to. It's fascinating. Mm -hmm. You do LinkedIn really well, Claire. Oh, thank you. (laughs) I think you do it well. Thank you. I'm I'm a bit more of a corporate uh, corporate sellout on LinkedIn, but (laughs) the writing still does kind of give it a bit of breath of fresh air. Uh, when it does happen, do you feel like, especially when we talk about community and the very tight-knit nature of that, do you feel like the um, closeness of Auslet has been beneficial to you in any way in terms of opportunities and growth in your careers? I'll start with Susie. Um, I think in the sense, because I do see myself as an outsider, I'm looking outwards rather than inwards, I would say. I like being, especially now being an editor at Kilia Darling's, I'm keen to publish people who have never published with KYD before, um, also first-time writers. Um, I think in some ways it takes a bit more effort to develop writers and to reach out to people that you can't see like on the surface. I, this is this LinkedIn thing is news to me. I should probably look at LinkedIn a bit more. Um, <laughs> I it hasn't occurred to me, but um, definitely on the looking outwards and in that respect, if you're a writer who feels like you don't know how to like where the opportunities are or how to get them um as a like an editor myself and the editors I work with and I know a lot of other publications are looking for fresh voices um and so as much as it may seem like a closed circle um new blood new voices is really what we're after so don't be disheartened by clickishness <laughs> what about at Archer Roz how has your experience been at Archer in terms of um I imagine it is um, it interest, it's always interesting to manage with when you're looking at submissions and applications. Um, and it's very exciting and refreshing to see a name that you've never seen before, mm, that you've never heard of. Yeah, um, it's interesting because I started out as um, an online editor there. And so I I was very much like always in the pitch email address and looking through it. And, you know, anyone here who's who's like been responsible for a pitch email, like you get all sorts of things. And like try being the pitch email at a sex and sexuality publication, like you get some real interesting things. <laughs> um, and so I think I got really used to digging through that and, you know, never just going through it and like, you know, um, having my eyes just be drawn to the the big names that that come through because we get pictures from people who are very established and like very well known Um, but just making sure like we're very equitable with who we look at Um, and also having like a real sort of mentory sort of relationship back and forward with the people pitching like um, I spoke at an RMIT class recently um, and it was really great like I was telling them all like please pitch. Don't be scared of pitching at Archer. We will like reply back to you. And if there's something wrong with your pitch, don't worry. We will like 
go back and forward and dialogue. And at the end, like their teacher was saying to me, oh, they were all saying that they actually feel comfortable. They're going to go and send pictures now because they've sent it to other publications and just not heard back and felt really crap, you know, and felt, and, you know, as, as an, an emerging writer, like you take that silence and you don't realize it's happening across the board, but potentially you think it's you and there's something wrong with you and the publication like sees you as a nobody. And so I think that's been really important, like replying and making people feel heard and seen. Um, and, you know, often saying to them that pitch isn't quite right for us. Do you have any other ideas? Um, and it's taught me a lot about pitching myself as well, like how I approach publications and like, um, I guess that you can like really, I guess, make yourself a bit vulnerable and like talk about your background and talk about the things that you might potentially write about and give the editors um, more to work with, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I think then moving into the print part of the magazine is very different because we commission the writers for that mm. um and so I'm actually really glad that I came to print from the online space because I feel like I really know how to go and find writers who are lurking in holes somewhere like you know I would never go okay I'm commissioning this issue let's go and get like the biggest names possible like I don't think like that um I think you know oh I remember seeing a Twitter thread about that and um or like not even just on Twitter like I think of someone and I find a way to get to that writer and you know yeah so I think that's been like an important part of the process too like making sure that um I'm reaching out to people who may not be either online may not be connected um or who aren't used to having the opportunities and they're thrilled like we all know what it's like to be commissioned especially for the first time it's really exciting for emerging writers and I think that um with everyone on this panel being a very online person we are quite used to the strength of that online community and the people who um I mean with you for instance I I know all of your work I've read all of your work I am very familiar with your career progressions and paths because of um the fact that I follow you on Twitter very simple as simple as that uh but we've not met in real life and we are all very familiar with the strength of that online community but Roz you're making an argument for the offline community and how much they have to contribute as well and the ways in which an editor has a responsibility to expand that circle beyond what's familiar. Yeah, and I think when I see a long list or a short list go up now for a competition, um, it's often really interesting to me looking at, on, at Twitter and seeing who's not tagged. Um, you know, some of the people whose names I don't know and they're not tagged because they don't have a handle, they're not on Twitter, and they take a bit of digging. And I kind of like that kind of private investigator part of editing like I'm going to find that person and I'm going to connect with them um, and I think yeah it is a really important part of the role yeah what about you Susie with in terms of editing um, with for new Australian fiction how has your experience been there in terms of established names versus new names um, and also the fact that many of them could be offline or could be new to the community uh, well a lot of our um stories come from the submissions, uh, just a small amount come from the commissions. And from that, that's a bit of a balancing act um, in the sense that, yes, we are kind of looking for some like more established names to, you know, um, to get some like high quality stories off the bat. Mm. Uh, but also it's a part of um, addressing some of the imbalances to um, uh, the submissions, are, uh, usually people that are or almost all people that are members of KYD, it's a part of the submissions process. Um, with the exception, we encourage 
uh, First Nations writers to um, submit without um, membership as part of our paying the rent um, promise. Um, so in the commissioning phase for me, um, I've only just started recently, it is about also thinking about where there may be gaps maybe from the readership and how can we extend our readership further to people that haven't been included before um, and, and it's um, a different there's a number of things to consider as well like also about location because it does sometimes feel very much um, in the cities and particularly I guess in uh, Melbourne and Sydney and how you reach outside of those areas as well is important in that process too. Yeah yeah that's very important. And do you find that a lot of times with the nature of editing that that sometimes does, whether directly or indirectly, um, become also a relationship of mentoring and guidance? Well, definitely. I think, you know, some people may be used to the processes and how it all works. Um, but for majority of writers who are starting out on you, or who may not be as engaged in the literary community, whatever form, there does need to be like an exchange of information and a kind of collaborative process to get something, yeah. um, a piece developed and um, for it to be, you know, at a standard that everyone's happy with. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think that's an important part. And thankfully I'm with KYD right now that really like focuses on different, many different ways of trying to develop writers and, um, build connections and partnerships with different writing groups that might not be um, most obvious ones. And I think that's an important process. And also consultation is really important. And I'm glad that it's something that we direct our resources and it's something that we make a priority. Yeah. Um, and Claire, you've um, written uh, a fair bit about the state of Australian publishing and editing and um, the fact that with that, with those relationships, it's um, it's just, it's always really interesting when the industry itself is quite one-sided in its um, representation, and uh, I suppose very restrictive in its imagination in terms of what people of color writers and people of color editors are capable of. Can you tell me a little bit more about your work in that area? Yeah, I think. Um... So I'm, I'm going to speak a bit about my experience at VoiceWorks, but also I want to be clear, I'm not um, speaking on behalf of VoiceWorks as kind of a, a brand, um, just because I'm not the <laughs> editor-in-chief. Um, but I think, uh, I think it's been a really interesting experience, particularly over my six years um, so far, of realising probably the first three or four of those years um, we were publishing a lot of white people um, and often a lot of the same people over and over. Um, and we, we made a number of changes, I think, um, for the better, um, but we're always still learning um, from, from our community about um, how can we go about this better? Um, and some of that is like talking to um, Jet Press and Liminal about um, what, are, what are the publishing practices we're doing? What are we excited about? What's not working for us? Um, I, think, I think I get a real joy out of um, what we do at VoiceWorks, which is a lot of um, focusing on, on that mentoring of young writers. Um, so it's been, yeah, really great to see a number of people kind of come through in both in the um, editing side and in the writing side um, who, yeah, may not have previously had um, those opportunities. 
I think I think we've um, we've published quite a few things recently um, where you know I I know it's a classic problem of um, diverse writers and it's not the best term but um, you know being pushed to write about their own experiences of racism or um, adversity in in some form and I think we just leave things very open of like write what you want um, and I I think that's part of um, how we've made some changes there um so I've really enjoyed working on on those kind of pieces so I've been um editing nonfiction um for the last year or so and that's that's given me a lot of opportunity as well for myself to to learn um where where I need to listen to other people and step away um and I think that's a really valuable experience can you tell me about an editor who's made a huge difference in your journey as a writer yeah. Oh, gee. There's been there's been a few. I think. Um, yeah. I'm always just in awe of Adalia, who's the current editor in chief of Voiceworks, um, and also Mira um, before Adalia as well. Um, both have done some incredible work. Um, in terms of like who I've worked with as a writer, um, I would have to say Susie. Honestly. <laughs> had a great experience um, with Susie at KYD. Um, I feel like I haven't worked with the same people regularly um, in my own writing journey, um, but it's been really good to see how I like being edited. Um, mm-hmm. I had an edit recently on something that, that isn't published yet that was a lot more um, like strictly grammatical, um, which I don't get too often. Um, and I, I really enjoyed it, but I think it, it could have been intimidating for um, someone who maybe wasn't familiar with <laughs> the editing processes. Um, so, yeah, sometimes I like um, more of a structural thing, um, where yeah you kind of figure out like oh this section's not really working let's move that and expand this other bit um so I've had yeah some great people work on that with me what about you Ross yeah so many names come to mind um I know one person who was really influential was Cherie Joseph who was the editor at The Vocal which is sadly no longer around it was part of Fairfax um and Cherie was amazing I loved her process from the start I remember when she initially sought pitches she asked what you're currently like excited to snack on and I was like any editor (laughs) who asks me about food we're just going to connect um and you know instantly it was like let's talk ethnic foods and let's talk this and you know Anyway, so Cherie was great and a wonderful editor too, not just food-related stuff. Um, they go hand in hand, don't they? Yeah, they do. They're very important. If you don't enjoy food, like, yeah. <laughs> uh, Rebecca Stafford at Kill Your Darlings, um, who edited um, a really, like, a, one of my first pieces that was published um, and who just kind of didn't give up, like, when, you know, she had these really helpful edits and I felt like, oh, God, this is, like, really onerous and I didn't realise like how much this piece needed structural work and, you know, various other things. Um, And she never gave me a sense of like, we should just give up on this piece, you know, and she just like persisted with it. And I think that taught me like that tenacity as an editor and as a writer. 
um, Adolfo Aranuez, who's speaking at this um, festival on the weekend, I believe. Um, I haven't been edited by Adolfo, but I've worked, like, kind of worked together. And also I remember seeing him early on present at an editing festival and he was so meticulous about everything that I just remember being like, oh, my God, like you can be that fastidious and that's a wonderful thing instead of being a weirdo. You know, that's so great. Really? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I think that they're particularly someone I learned so much from by just just through their tweets mm. and just through seeing their practice and their Instagram as well. Like observing their practice has just been such an educating experience for me because they're that generous. They just share. Yeah. And when I came on as editor, um, it was really funny for me looking at the various tabs from past Archer editors. And I was told by Amy early on, like when you'll, you'll know which ones are Adolfo's because <laughs> they're like color coordinated and yep. just so organized. And I'm like, this is like how I'm going to do it for sure. Like I'll find my own way, but this is the framework I want to work with. Yeah. That's, that's, that's exactly what I expect. <laughs> that's exactly how I would expect it. Yeah. What about you, Susie? When you, you've mentioned a couple of times that the thing about, one of the things that make this reflection very special for you is that you do view yourself as an outsider. So do you feel like there are particular editors, one or more, who've um, supported you through coming in from the outside? Well, definitely Hella, I think that was a formative experience because it was kind of like the first person who I could talk to who worked inside the industry and worked for like a trade public, like a publisher and um, really could speak on like the nuts and bolts of things and how things really work and like the industry type questions. Um, I've been, I've really loved loving my experience at KYD. Um, Rebecca Stafford and Alan who work at um, KYD have been like so generous with their kind of feedback and also allowing me to see how they edit and uh, yeah, that's been really formative. But just on the note of like one of probably the most formative things and the way I edit now is I had a kind of bad experience as a young writer and the other editor was kind of a young editor too. So, I mean, there's that's kind of the background on that. But for me, it was just like all these things kind of happened that felt like disempowering as a writer. And I think for me, it just formed the way I see editing. I definitely see it as like a collaborative experience. So while at the time it felt like a bit of a like shitty experience mm. look on it and be like that was like so important for me about how I approach the editing process and how we get to the final kind of product and I suppose there's also um I mean editors are learning too and that's a very good point uh, about these negative experiences and how they can shape something um I remember one particular time where I had a fairly negative experience with an editor who themselves was quite young. And Hella was actually the person who I was DMing about the entire exchange and just <laughs> sending her screenshots of the whole interaction one after the other and going like, what do I do? What do you think? And as you would expect, she was just so extremely generous with her advice and her um, support and validation and expert opinion in terms of what an editor should and shouldn't be doing. Uh, and she was so fundamental in, in making sure that that piece was still good in the end, even though it wasn't her job. She was very generous in that way. But also she, what that dynamic kind of looked like is that I would have my vent to edit about what this editor was doing to my work. And then edit, edit sorry, hello would then um, give me the advice in terms of what I need to do or kind of what I need to put in an email. And I would do that. Uh, so I was kind of like 
just transferring that knowledge through. And it's been really good seeing that editor get so much better at their practice in the years after. That I look at their work now and I think, okay, this is not the same person I was dealing with um, a few years ago. This is an improved version of them. And that generosity has meant, I would hope, that their writers after have experienced a much better um, interaction, much better, much better mentorship process and support for their work. And that's the kind of effect Heather has, I think, on a lot of people. <laughs> She's quite exceptional. I'm a big fan of her. She adopted me when I went to Melbourne for a week. And I'm so grateful. I was just going to throw in there also love Bella um, but just like we've talked about a, a few like younger editors where we've had issues I think on the same side of that coin there's also like older editors and like without going into like gossip sesh you know I think like there can be people who've been in the industry for a long time are uh, in like you know high up positions in the lit world and are quite you know either conservative or quite inflexible about their views about particular things um and one thing i've loved about community is um communities around editing and writing is that kind of warning process and support if things go wrong um and i've been warned about you know various again don't want to sound like the gossip here but like it might be a various publication or a particular editor where people have had negative experiences you know as people of color as perhaps trans and gender diverse people and just having that intel ahead of time and knowing so you don't then go into it being you know exposing yourself or being really vulnerable and then being met with something really bad yeah, the Whisper Network that we have going through our very unofficial union is one of the most powerful <laughs> that, that young young writers and young editors or perhaps even outsider writers and outsider editors have. That all the, I, can't, I can only think of all the editing situationships I could have gotten into had I not known mm. that this person came with so many red flags that they disguised so well in my presence. Um, or... I wish we could have more than a whisper network. Um, you know, I, I definitely think, yeah, community has been very valuable in hearing about, um, yeah, certain problems, whether that's individuals or publications as a whole. Um, yeah. And, yeah, having people um, disclose various things to me, um, I think, informs, yeah, not only what I do but also in uh, what I do as a writer but also in in how I think about editing that you know what are we doing if it's not mm. like anti-racist and um making sure that we're accepting um all genders and and everyone I think like in my role as an editor I try and leave space for pushback um, mm. as well um mm, true so the like especially with like emerging or new writers that there is like I can flag like if if you want to discuss this further like here's my opinion but if you want to discuss this further let's talk about that and I think that's important part of editing maybe that sometimes doesn't happen um like we did a, a piece where we interviewed writers about what they wish they knew they were about editing and some of the writers like I wish I knew I could question things more and I think yeah, that should definitely be a part of the editing process to allow like a to and fro and for it to be like a conversation and not just like a one-way thing. That takes yeah, a lot I of love that series. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that is something that takes a lot of like confidence and um, not confidence, but 
it's it's one of the fruits of one, of both editor and writer going into situations having put their ego at the door and yeah i make mistakes too and i like can acknowledge that like i think if you yeah ego should be left at the door ultimately it's not my name on a piece and yeah. so i kind of feel like in that sense i kind of defer to the writer mm. Except maybe on some like core value type stuff, which is yeah, yep. On the whole, yeah, defer to the writer. I was yep. I was just having this conversation very recently with um, a very established editor, um, very experienced editor, and like just talking about the amount of pushback that I'm like quite comfortable getting from a contributor, um, and you know, willing to go back and forward and have them say, you know, these are my access needs or whatever it is um, that I'm like, like I want that to happen. I want a writer to feel like they can bring those things up with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the editor I was speaking to was kind of like, oh gosh, like I don't know how I would feel about that um and I was like oh like and I find that really interesting like I don't know if it's like a generational thing as well where um and you know without wanting to bring like age stuff into it but like I've definitely noticed with Gen Z and with millennials like um it there's you know, like I remember reading that article you might have all seen and I think it was the New York Times about how millennials are now scared of Gen Z in the workplace because they're willing to just call things out. And I'm like, you know, I think that's fantastic. I love that culture of like calling each other out, pointing out mistakes, you know, calling people back in, all that kind of stuff. Like I think it's such an important part of collaboration and community as editors and as writers. And like I can't imagine working in that space of like, no, the contributor should be grateful you know, for, for getting published and should just take whatever your edits are. I think that mentality of um, gratitude that you just mentioned is something that can be so detrimental and so toxic um, in the sense that not only is it preventing um, all of us from getting better at what we do and having better work out there, but it's also potentially preventing us from having just better conditions for our work. And we often don't think of it as work. It is work. It is labor. But because it comes with a certain um, creative flair or whatever you want to romanticize about that, we could be very dismissive of um, the rights that people have in terms of that give and take with with the other person. And I'd be interested to hear from you, Claire, about this in terms of um, unionizing among workers in this case, whether it's editors or whether it's booksellers or whether it's writers. And we know that major uh, major publishing houses across the world are already quite heavily unionized, but not in Australia, not so much, except when I was really surprised to see when I was looking at the Better Red Than Dead campaign, that this was one of the um, uh, first of its kind uh, types of industrial action in the past five decades. It was wild. It is. It's it's pretty wild. Um, yeah, there there hasn't been, as far as I'm aware, um, any um, authorized industrial action in retail uh, in about fifty years. Um, so that the campaign at Better Red Than Dead is truly incredible. And there's also thinking about community um, is obviously it's it's a much loved <laughs> bookshop. There's a huge community that is supporting the booksellers. Um, you know, I w- wish I could be there <laughs> as well, but um, the community rallies seem to have um, really been lifting the spirits and, and carrying the fight. 
Um, and it, it is interesting on the whole, I think. Um, yeah, you're right that there, there is a more established kind of union movement um, in um, international publishers and some bookshops, I think, um, that is, it's bubbling away here. And I think it is bigger than, than we often realize. So um, for an article for, for KYD, um, I worked with Susie on, um, I ended up talking to a lot of people who had left publishing um, and I was particularly um, interested in um, how unionizing had kind of played out in in those cases um, and what I really found was the the kind of movement is so much bigger than than we would think um, so people the probably or the movement to leave publishing Oh, sorry, the movement to unionize, probably also to leave publishing, but yeah. Um, so people may be aware of, um, yeah, unionizing efforts at Penguin Random House and Hardy Grant. Um, I can say it's a lot bigger than just that. Those are the two that have kind of had, um, I guess, more success so far. Yeah, so we're starting to see more conversations um, around, yeah, bookshops, publishing, um, and not just editors, but um, more broader into you know, publicists and um, everyone who works in publishing about, yeah, we're, we're told that we, we do it for the love of it, um, you know, should be grateful to be here. <laughs> um, but the conditions are, yeah, pretty bad often. The pay is low. Um, yeah, so I think I think there is a big movement and starting to make some change, but it is it is still also like a long, difficult fight. Yeah. And how do you see that the um, the recent campaign about like that received so much support from um, hundreds of writers who signed? Yeah, I think it was over four hundred. Amazing. That's incredible. Yeah, I think I think it's incredible, and it it really um, makes space for, for booksellers um, mm -hmm. not at that bookshop to, you know, to start um, working on better conditions as well yeah. and, um, yeah, start unionising. Yeah, we would at least, at the very least, hope that it's, um, that it's kind of a wake-up call for yeah. industry bodies that take it for granted that, yes, everybody here loves what they do. Everybody here sees passion and purpose in what they do. Um, everybody here has young writers um, that they want to support and um, lift, lift up their voices and help them with their careers. But that is such an easy thing to exploit. And there's been absolutely no hesitation in making sure that that does get exploited. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that with everything that I, all the shit that I talked about, Austlitz and all the terrible things that I have to say. It is oftentimes, it has oftentimes been a community that's banded together. We've seen that with the um, Melbourne Queer Film Festival. Uh, we've seen mm. that with, um, uh, without going into too much gossip, like with a lot of the terrible things that have happened in the Australian literary scene over 2020 and 2021. Mm, we've seen a lot of <laughs> I have received very subtly worded emails threatening to like sue but not sue me mm. <laughs> because mm. I tweet so much shit. And the legal side has been really scary the last two years. 
yeah like how am I supposed to have a community if you keep mm-hmm. threatening to sue me I'm trying to have the community stop being a bad person if you don't want to be tweeted about <laughs> alternative solution um but yeah it's it's absolutely a time and I suppose with what's recently happened with Peter Dutton's case we're also it just is such a massive threat to to the freedom of criticizing the power uh, that some people have and just how much we can be vocal against that power. But that's another conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Rose, I did want to ask you a little bit in terms of that solidarity and that support that we get from community. And we do have about 10 minutes left. So this will probably be one of my last couple of questions. So if people in the um, among the audience members have questions they would like to ask as well, feel free to either raise your hand or type it in into the um, question or chat situation at the bottom uh, and we'll get to it shortly. But Roz, your debut memoir Mood is coming out in 2022. It's investigating the intersections between mental illness, Jewish and queer identity and intergenerational trauma. Uh, Writing such personal and um, I think writing across nonfiction in, in general, let alone memoir, let alone very personal and um, in-depth investigations of our history and what we've been through and what we would like to stop going through. Uh, it can be so isolating and can sometimes when combined with um, depression or anxiety or mental illness can be a bit dangerous. How do you feel like your community or your mentors have supported you through this? And what are some of the things that we can aspire to have across the industry for these kind of, mm. for these kind of challenges? Thank you. That's a great question. Um, yeah, I think back to the events that I write about in the memoir, like particularly the years 2015, 2016, and I really think, oh, my gosh, I was so isolated um, at the worst of my mental illness. I was just... Um, so many different parts of my identity were coming up in really ugly ways in different parts of my life. Um, so I was teaching at a school where my, you know, ugh, without going too much into it, read the book, um, that you, like on a daily basis, I would encounter homophobia, transphobia, anti-Semitism, and racism in the classroom. Um, oh, often Islamophobia as well. Uh, a whole bunch of different phobias and prejudices and like you know, things that I didn't hold against the kids. They were often picking up at home in their own communities um, online. And I didn't feel like I had the resources mentally, personally to cope with that. So I stuck it out as best I could. Um, Didn't realize at the time that would like give me a great founding for my book, but (laughs) I guess um, it wasn't until like actually leaving that really difficult time um, and headspace that I could kind of see what I needed then and then like start to offer it to myself in you know the doses that I need after that period so things like um, I guess mental health support um, being a really important one but also one that that involves a lot of privilege to access so like seeing a good therapist which I went through a whole string of really terrible therapists one of them told me I had to like get over racism um uh you know and um so mental health being one part of it um having support in the writing community um and I saw someone just mention in the chat 
um, MEAA um, and ASA, and there is a number of like other unions and, and organizations that we haven't even mentioned tonight. Um, but having that support where if something goes wrong, it's not just our whisper network, but you feel like there's someone you can go to as well, I think is really important. Um, and then also having spaces where you can explore intersections of your identity safely. Um, and for me, a huge part, a huge one for that was Jewish queer space, uh, queer spaces. And there's um, a particular space online on Facebook um, that Nevor Zissin, the writer, um, created. And I'm so grateful for it. It's this wonderful little hub of very lefty queer Jews. Um, and we generally are all really isolated in our Jewish community because we don't fit in politically around Israel-Palestine. And we um, have, you know, various things that we've all gone through that we can like kind of connect together and I found until I found a place where I could explore like these different parts of my identity I felt isolated and very depressed and so when I work with um, writers I think it's really important um, I guess in that mentoring process to make sure people are well supported um and obviously you know we're not their therapists we can't like just give out endless referrals and like fix what situations people are in. Um, but I do think it's really important like that people have communities. And I think the more that we can make community spaces accessible and make sure that people are connected. And, you know, we've talked a lot tonight about cliques in the literary world, but I think there are cliques in every world. Um, so making sure in our communities that it's not just about, I don't know, all the all, like appearance and who's popular and socializing and making sure that the people who we don't often hear from and who are disconnected and maybe don't really have a lot of close friends, making sure that they're like brought in to things. I don't know if I really answered that well, but like there's a lot of different rambly threads there <laughs> that have been important, I think, in my journey. That's very beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm really looking forward to reading it. Thanks. Um, I'm going to jump to a question from Sally Ann regarding unionization, saying that the MEAA for journalists mainly, but also editors and writers of publishing exists and has been quite a strong union for many years, but they don't seem to represent freelance writers and editors. What sort of union are you thinking of that would be helpful for writers and editors when talking about unionization? I think this is an interesting question. Um, so the, the MEAA does represent um, freelance writers or editors. I think, I think it's a big challenge because that can be quite a fragmented part of the industry, particularly where, you, you know, you're not working in-house. Um, they are working on a campaign at the moment, um, specifically on Guardian freelancers. Um, I think that's mostly focused on writers, but um, might be a little broader. Um, but to try to increase um, the pay rates and make sure it's kind of across the board that no one's getting lowballed. Um, and they're also interested in um, getting super paid on freelance work, um, which I think would be a huge change um, if, if that's able to happen. That would be incredible. Um, so I think, I think there is some of that going on already um, with MEAA, but um, it's, yeah, it's a tricky part of the industry where, I don't know, I, I don't have <laughs> all of the answers for it. Um, I don't know whether maybe we need um, something else. My experience with unionization as a writer and 
it affects me, I suppose, perhaps a bit less than it affects a full-time freelance writer because I work full-time in communications and mm. um, I write at the same time. But to me, when I think of unions, I think of the amount of times that I've messaged Matilda, for example, saying, this is what's going on. What do you think with mm. the sense? And I've done this with so many of my trusted, wonderful and generous friends. I do this with my housemate quite regularly. And to me, these, these are unions. These are unions that we're forming. As in, we're cross-referencing what everyone's getting paid. We're mm-hmm. making sure that things are fair. We're um, being very open with each other in terms of our experiences at a certain publisher or a certain editor or a certain community or a certain festival, a certain magazine. And that's a lot of intel for each other. And I think that employer or most most of um, the um, the people kind of holding the pay slips or the edit, whether it be at the journals, be at the festivals, be at the organizations, know that these conversations are happening among um, among those networks and are conscious of that, are conscious of that. Um, those conversations impacts on their reputation and on their understanding in the industry and can be mindful uh, can be mindful of them that they are doing the right thing sometimes they just completely ignore them <laughs> uh, like Schwartz media for example just does not care what's being tweeted yeah um, just has completely turned a complete blind eye to it even though it's been it's been so so deeply covered so that's what I think of to me I don't think of a formal union I think of those connections over the years which mm. have come from festivals or which have come from twitter or which have come from collaborations here and there matilda is our union is the conclusion yes <laughs> the union of matilda we're all yeah. members um, we could make it an official union like you know there's nothing that says that we can't become a union of writers or a union of editors if we really want to just a thought <laughs> that's true that's absolutely true. I feel like we already are. What do you mean we can? We're already <laughs> exactly. Um, We're already doing the work. Yeah. Uh, Justina Ashman also asks, um, you've talked about being inside or outside of a writing and editing community and about how you've been supported by your communities. But how do you go about building that community? How do you as editors and writers find yourselves growing and nourishing the community around you? Um, Susie, would you like to take the lead in answering this one? Sure, it's a a very interesting question for me considering living in Melbourne through these lockdowns and feeling quite isolated and um, thinking about how I've approached things over this period and how I'll approach things in the future. Um, I definitely think for me recently, I've never been that, like when you said I'm very online, I've only only since I started up at um, KYD did I even get Twitter and so that's been kind of like a new method of kind of building community for me. And for me, that is about um, working with writers and just establishing like working relationships and helping them with opportunities and making sure it's clear that if they, beyond the scope of what we do with like KYD, if they have like, they can use me as a reference or if they ever like building kind of relationships. So if they need advice or, um, or if they want someone to read a piece of work, I'm open to those like discussions and it's not like a closed door that way. So that's one of the things that I've been kind of doing, but it's definitely in terms of growing and nourishing community around us for like the future, some things we've been thinking about is like, how do we connect with other writing like Mm -hmm. groups around the country? 
So things like Centre for Stories in Perth, when like we haven't really um, worked with them before, it'd be really great to like establish some like new connections rather than as well as like building on old ones, establishing new ones. I might jump on from there. Um, I, I completely agree about writing letters of reference. I remember seeing some interesting stuff on Twitter about particular communities. And I know people of colour were talking about this as well, about that feeling of like not entering things because it just feels like a, a massive obstacle and you don't know the right people. And so I think as an editor, making yourself available to do that, um, writing a letter that's a template that you, you know, I remember an editor saying to me, you're welcome to just edit it as you go. Like, you know, not change her words, but like change the date, change the name of the opportunity. Um, and it just immediately made me apply for things because it no longer felt scary that I was going to have to go and knock on someone's door. And I think also um, saving writers money when you can, because we're like, you know, most, most, unless you're independently wealthy, most are struggling. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I was talking to a writer who really wanted to go through, um, oh, I probably shouldn't say <laughs> which organization, but they were going to go and pay handsomely for some mentoring. And I just kind of pointed out to them that through the NDIS, um, there's a way to access, you know, get some support for, for funding. You know, um, that's a whole side separate conversation about disabilities and, and supports and things like that. But I think a lot of people aren't aware that like through Arts Access and um, through a number of different organizations, you can get support with your writing. Um, and I think for me, I see that as part of my job too, that if people um, are not going to the right websites because they're not aware of them, part of what I can do is like that referral. Like, by the way, you might think this is a useful thing. And yeah. Um, I think also um, the kind of paying it forward thing as well, uh, something that I was struggling with, I think earlier this year was seeing, you know, all the festivals get canceled and so many writers losing school events and everything as well, which is a significant part of um, people's income. Um, and for, for the few people who I think <laughs> did put on their Twitter, like, you know, you can PayPal me or whatever, um, and just, just doing that. And that doesn't necessarily grow a kind of personal relationship with that person um but I think being aware of um the community's needs as a whole that um 2021 has been a rough year I think for a lot of writers um and yeah just taking taking the opportunities if if we can to um support people um financially where we can and I was just going to add to that like I've seen recently the disability justice network um check them out on Twitter if you haven't already, um, are doing really amazing stuff that I think could be a bit of a, like something that we could all learn from and adopt some of the way that they're approaching supporting um, people with disabilities. And it's just been no questions asked. You need that funding. You know, your family's going through a rough time or, you know, you need to pay this particular bill. We're going to help you out with that the best way we can. And I think sometimes that's what's needed. Um, I know sometimes I'll get texts about, you know, the Guardian campaign through ME. AA. And I'm like, I am too exhausted to engage with this. Like, I know it's important, but I just can't do it. Mm. And so I think sometimes just someone helping you, like helping pay a bill or helping you just, you know, being Matilda, another plug for her, but like being that person on the other end of the text saying, yeah, I know, let's talk about this. You know, I think that just making sure people are really held. Absolutely. And uh, recently I found out you could apply for a grant, not for yourself, but for somebody else to mentor you. Um, you could apply for a grant and say that there's nothing like you don't 
you don't really need anything because, for example, you've got a full-time job or you're, you're all right. But somebody else needs, um, somebody else could be offering you supporting guidance and they need to get paid. So put that on a grant application. Mm-hmm. And whenever you are applying for a grant, make sure that you're sharing that money around a little bit mm-hmm. in the sense of who else could be who else could be offering something to this project that the government can, in one way or another, pay them to do? Um, that's That was really helpful. Um, can yeah. I just add one thing? And just in terms of building community, like just, just reaching out to anybody who you like is a really good way to build community. Anyone who interests you, anyone whose work you like and saying, hey, I really like your work I really like you can I ask you some questions can we get a coffee can we have a zoom chat if they don't live where you live or whatever um is a really good way to build community like pretty much every single person who is on a panel at this event you know is someone who I just reached out to and said hey I really like your work would you like to be on the panel and so you know it's sometimes people say no and that's fine that's part of being a writer or an editor as well as like taking rejection and it's just like taking rejection of community like people don't always have the time to build community with you but there will always be people who do have the time and that's how you do it you just go like hey I like you let's let's be editor friends let's be community buddies I love community buddies that's beautiful um I might um ask you one final question before we close uh, which is, if you could tell me one of the, one of your favorite or one of the most memorable pieces of advice you've gotten from a mentor or from your community. I'll go first. Going first. <laughs> I'll go first. Uh, one of the most, uh, one of the things that have completely shifted my career in a better direction was when um, one mentor in particular said to me to give it a lot more time before going out with my first book and not really rushing into it because I felt like, um, for example, refugee literature was having a moment. And so I needed to kept, like to get in on that and make sure that my book was out while those books were out. Um, and if I had done that, which is what I was going to do, I would have um, confined myself to a box, which I don't know how I would have ever gone out of it. And I would have accepted conditions to sell that work um, that would have been completely detrimental to my career and going out with um, uh, that book in particular would have meant that there was a risk of me being confined to that as in not being able to write about anything else especially that the racist industry sometimes asks a person of color to only write about their trauma and his advice to me was to take the time establish yourself in other ways first and gain that trust and gain that authority and then go back in with the book. Um, that was really helpful to me. Um, and he said, you don't have to worry. You, you might never write the book and that's okay. The worst thing that will happen is that people will read it. Then you actually have to talk about it. But other than that, who cares? <laughs> We're all gonna die in the end. Climate change is happening. Government's doing nothing about it. Everything's collapsing. So just do what you want. And whatever it is that you do, make sure that you're doing right by other people and by yourself. But there's really no rush to publish a book. That was very, very instrumental to me, knowing that there was no rush. Um, just thinking about like advice and so many things to choose from. They're probably all very obvious though. Um, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. One of like the like silliest things that has been kind of helpful because I, w- I was really shy and like like I said I would go to things and not meet people and be a wallflower and I remember someone once said to me if you want to like meet people just be the last person at the party always like right wait until the very end this is not for everyone but that actually did really help me I um just <laughs> sorry this is a very strange piece of advice um <laughs> but um just kind of like participating and like meeting people in like an organic way um and taking your time to meet people too and get to know them is probably a good way to be you don't like yeah I think that's probably a good one um yeah don't worry about clicks but like be in the moment and like reach meet people halfway and if they don't meet halfway it's fine it's like we're off a duck's back but you'll often like find that someone else is just also like a lonely person at a party that they feel weird at so yeah I really like that advice of being the last person to leave the party. Yeah, that does that does change things. There's a certain spirit of camaraderie among the last five people. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> what about you, Ross? What stands out for you? Mm, I mine uh, are a bit of yours, Laura, and a bit of Susie's. Um, I was just thinking for me also with my book, um, the first time I got shortlisted for a prize um, and publishers reached out to me and I was like, oh my God, like I have to, I have to make it work with one of these publishers. This is the only time in my life this will happen and I need to grab this opportunity. Um, and I spoke to a writer um, who told like a, a um, you know, a best-selling writer who said to me, don't go into it with that approach. Um, the publishers will always be there. And, you know, she said it with the confidence of like an American best-selling white woman, but still she's, she was like, they'll always be there. Um, but I think it was really helpful to hear it. Like, because I went in with such a kind of scarcity mentality of like, I must, doesn't matter if it's the wrong fit, doesn't matter what they ask me to do, I must work with one of these people. Um, so I think like you as well, just being able to like kind of shelve that. And the book that I had written at that time wasn't the right book and, is, you know, it's not what's coming out now. Um, so that was definitely one. And also as a, as a fellow shy person, Susie, I, I really love your advice. Um, and it just made me think also um, before we did the event tonight, how, um, Lou, you brought up um, Twitter and online spaces and what they've meant for for us uh, around access and for me as like a lifelong shy awkward person if I didn't have Twitter I wouldn't have literary community um, you know I've built connections with people online and then in person I'm like oh I can talk to this person because we've sort of met and have a weird relationship online it's nice um, so I think for awkward people, for people with mental illness, for people with disabilities or any other access needs, um, you know, use that online space. Try not to be um, put off by the fact that it looks super clicky. Not all of us are into that. Like find the people who, you know, are similar in some great way. That's absolutely true. Spot on. Thank you. No um, yeah, I've as you've been talking, I've been like thinking through oh, what, what sticks out. And I think for me, um, this is probably a more practical one almost in that it didn't have so much um I guess emotional weight um was just a conversation about like I'd I really want to work in children's publishing for example um and I kind of had my heart set on doing um like Deacon's got a graduate diploma I think in children's literature and I thought like oh that would be so great I would have so much fun and then I would just magically get a job in kids publishing um and having a conversation with someone who, who 
worked in children's publishing really advising me against doing that. And I think, um, I think there's, yeah, a lot of value in advice of don't do more study unnecessarily. I think that, that a lot of what happens in the industry and community can be achieved without more study and more debt <laughs> specifically. Um, and I, I think, I think that's good advice for, for people in particular who are possibly concerned about the financial aspects of working in the community. Um, which is, you know, is not to say that all degrees are useless or anything, because of, of course not. Um, but yeah, to, to think really critically about, um, am I going to dedicate more time to studying in a formal institution that's going to cost me a lot of money versus how can I be part of this um, more organically, I think. Um, there's never truly, I mean, I don't ever see a degree as being, especially when I look around me, um, people whose journeys I really admire and higher education has just absolutely not been, not been a part of that. And myself having done a couple of degrees, um, them being beneficial in a certain way, but completely not in others, or in, a, in the ways that are generating income for me, as in, in terms of my day job, my degree is not a part of that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm happy with the choices I made, but absolutely cannot emphasize it enough that there is um, uh, there is no need. There is there is a desire, but not any need. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny to me because I'm doing a PhD. I'm at the end of it, and I really find in the uni setting that people are like now desperately trying to prove impact of their research, and they're coming to mm. people like us because they're like, "How do I do that? My work is so academic and boring, and no one wants to read it." <laughs> and so I go to these work like endless workshops about like how to do that. Oh, I used to go to those, and I'm like, "Oh, the stuff they're saying is really common sense to writers and editors. It's like <laughs> the things that we know <laughs> inherently." And the academic sector is desperately trying to have that sense of like relevance and connection. So I think if you've got that in your work anyway, if you're doing the hustle yourself, um, only do the degree if you're going to get funded to do it or, you know, it's going to make your life easier. Definitely not if you're going to go into debt. Absolutely. Thank you. That's, I think that's, a, that's really wonderful pieces of advice that you've all shared. And I'm very grateful to how generous you've been in sharing them. Uh, I'm sure that everybody who's been listening in today would join me in that gratitude. Um, that giving and that generosity and that sharing of knowledge is one of the integral things that make us strong in numbers. Um, and I think this is a union. This is absolutely 100% a union by every definition of the word. And I'm very grateful to you for allowing us to be part of it tonight. Thank you, Matilda, for... Um, organizing all of this. Thank you for being the driving force behind this festival. Thank you for your grant applications that have uh, allowed people to be paid for their work, but also allowed for this to be accessible, but also allowed for um, the price and the costs of tickets to these um, events across the weekend to be really affordable between $3 and $5. Um, that's incredible. That's way more than some very major festivals can save with themselves in terms of <laughs> and accessibility. And I cannot be any more proud to be involved. So thank you all very much. Thank you also to the um, captioner, um, Jason. Yes, Jason, thank you very much, Jason, for your work in the closed captions of this event. 
And I hope everybody had a good time. Um, and please do check out the rest of the program and the rest of the events that are on across the weekend. I'm really looking forward to a few of them and I'm sure I'll see many of you there. Thank you. You have been listening to an Editing Micro Festival podcast. This podcast was recorded from the 27th to the 29th of November 2021. It was produced and edited by Matilda Dixon-Smith and featured Lua Al-Grabi, Ros Bellamy, Susie Garcia and Claire Miller. With thanks to the City of Melbourne for their support.